So any comments on how Matthew's use of Scripture should inform ours? Um, Yes. Um, so, I mean, obviously, in, in part, that's a lot of what I'm trying to do in, in this, is to sort of talk about how Matthew sees Scripture, and then on the basis that we are going to do the same kind of thing. What I don't, I, I obviously don't think we can say, the reading today is taken from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, and then start inserting bits of Hebrews into it, um, because it makes the point plainer. Um, but I don't think, in fairness, Matthew is actually doing that. I think what he's doing is quoting quite... It's just culturally more a freer reading of, of a text. that, And a bit like we might say, the Bible says. Um, and then you might give a direct quotation of one passage. You might quote two or three passages together. And you might simply affirm biblical teaching without quoting any particular passage. And I think that's really what I think he's doing. So I think we can, in a sense, do what he does... But I don't think we can... I, I, mean, I wouldn't want us to draw the wrong lessons from what he's doing. I think typologically, I definitely want us to do that and tell the story that way, as we've been saying. And I think, to me, the main thing we could learn from Matthew in terms of interpreting the Bible is just how well he knows it and, and how diligently he studied it in order to... Well, I think he's the scribe that brings out new treasures as well as old. I think, that, I think that's a little Easter egg of Matthew in, the, in appearing, hello me, um, in, the, in the gospel, because I think he's saying, yeah, that, I'm a scribe who's been trained for the kingdom. That, that I, I did this. And now here I am going, I've got new treasures, what, who Christ is and what he's done, that help you bring out the glory of the old. And, um, and maybe even with the old and new wine, same sort of image. So I, I think that's the thing I'd learn from Matthew, not, oh gosh, he plays fast and loose. I don't think he does at all. I think he knows the scriptures better than we do. Um, but that's the challenge from him, yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> So I'm struggling to hear. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 exactly. I would totally agree. You know, he, he's not playing fast and loose. He, he's, he's trying to draw out the meaning so that we can see it more clearly rather than messing around with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. As you did, you know, uh, Jesus, Moses, Jesus, son of David, Jesus, Israel. Hmm. Can you also do a similar thing, Old Testament, New Testament, the kingdom of God? Talk more about that. In the sense that the kingdom is expressed, you know, mm. the reign of God is expressed mm. in the Old Testament. Jesus brings a greater fulfilment mm. of it in the New. So yeah. some would see the kingdom of God as an interpretive key to the whole of Scripture. Yeah. I wondered if you were going to deal with that later. No, I, okay, so that, okay, so that's good. So it is in the same way I've talked about Jesus as Israel, is in the same way the sort of, the, the, you know, in some traditions, the kingdom of God is the interpretative key to the whole of Scripture. I think prominently that the vineyard have done a lot of that. I think we've got some vineyard guys with us, and I know that's a big part. And then there'll be others where it's, it's very much a theme. I, I don't, this isn't disparaging any particular movements or traditions, but I don't, I think it's one of a, a, a it is a key, in that sense it's a, a theme, it's a thread, but I wouldn't elevate it above lots of other threads. So I don't think I would elevate it above the thread of, um, you know, garden to new city or above the thread of temple theology. So Greg Beale's book on the temple or some of those um, grey IVP covered, you know, those silver covered books, which do this a lot, don't they? They sort of go, 
if you just pull this thread, you can go the whole way through and you can see that the entire Bible is about temples or the entire Bible is about new creation or bread, exactly, or, or it can, really can, or like all things in all sorts of different ways or redemption or you know, exodus. I mean, I've written several books that do that with different themes. So it's not that I don't think you can do it. It's just that it's the, what, and I don't see this in the vineyard. I'm not, I'm not making that comment, but I think you can end up going, I really like this particular theme because of it, some of its pastoral or evangelistic payoffs. And so in my interpretation, I will elevate that theme whenever I see it. And I won't do the same with some of the other themes. And that's the thing I would probably caution against because I actually think most of those themes, you, you can just do it with, there's probably 20 major things like that. You could just hoik through the scriptures and, and you'd find it a really fruitful. So to me, I'd let's say, let's do more of it, not less, but not just to do it with the kingdom. And I, I do think that Matthew is, you know, obviously the Synoptic Gospels are really big on the, the kingdom theme, but I also think it is interesting how much lesser part they play when the church goes to the Gentiles and that there are contextual factors at work in which emphases in scripture are dialed up and dialed down at different times. And then actually in the Jewish setting, big kingdom ministry is a, is a big thing because everyone knows what it is. But when you go to very Gentile settings, they don't talk the same way. And we're in a more Gentile setting. So it, it might be just emissionally, it might be not the most effective way of talking about it, but we've got to have it at the heart of our theology of the church and, and, and what God is doing in history. So I think I would just say yes to kingdom, but yes to a number of other themes as well, rather than, um, yeah. Any other? It's great. That's a really illuminating question, I think. John. <laughs> We were talking about how, how, how the Old Testament is uh, constantly re-reading and re-telling. And Matthew is really re-reading and re-telling. Yeah. How in our preaching do we go through re-telling and re-reading in a fresh situation? I think in a way, I mean, the, answer, the only answer is, is probably is by doing exactly that, but doing it where the where we, I think we just have to be selective about which element of the story we're going to, we think is going to be most helpful for these people to hear re-narrated in this, in this passage. So um, but we had lots of examples on the typology page that we were doing yesterday evening where I think we could say, for me to retell Israel's story through, I could, there's loads of stories I could pick here, but I think the most useful one to bring us back through would be this one. You were talking at dinner about having a, an Old Testament reading earlier in the service to set up the New Testament reading, which obviously in Anglicanism, that's not an innovation. So they've been doing that for hundreds of years. That, that's just what the order of service is. And I think that idea of almost forcing intertextuality on the church through liturgy is a really good idea. You know, we're going to have a reading from this passage and then a reading from this passage and even leave that hanging for a while while you go, what is the connection between that and that? And then preaching is partly joining the dots. That's a really, I think that's a really good approach. Um, it isn't what we do in our church, partly for reasons of our church tradition, but I think it's a really good practice. Um, even just reading biblical, multiple different biblical passages for the same subject. So I think there's lots of ways we can do it, um, but you, to be honest, know more about it than me, I, I'm sure. Okay, Howard, sorry. Just a super quick one. So are other gospel writers doing this? Because if they are, then... Maybe it's Jesus doing this, and if they're not, it's Matthew doing it. <laughs> that falls foul of the head and hands. I tried to put it, 
I know you did, but it's still fallen foul of Whittlesey's law, um, which, <laughs> which is the longer a theological conference goes on, the, the number of references to who wrote which bit and why tends towards infinity. But give us this first part then. Do the other gospel writers do it? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think they do it as much as this from, from things I can... I've, I haven't noticed it as much in other Gospels, but I haven't studied the other Gospels with that... I mean, Richard Hayes draws it out as happening in various of them in his book, but I think Matthew does it significantly more than the others from memory when I read Hayes on it as that phenomenon in general. Um, Isn't that because Matthew quotes the Old Testament significantly more than the other Gospels? Yes, yeah, it probably is that Matthew quotes it more generally, not just quotes it more with interweaving. He more does quotes it more. Um, I think particularly in the, in the form of an actual quotation. Obviously, all of them do it loads by weaving different biblical allusions together and stories. But in this sense of what looks like a quote with another phrase smuggled in, I think Matthew does it more. And Tony's probably right. It's partly because he quotes it more generally. Yeah, I'm sorry for no, 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 no. Well, no, that, to be honest, there was a version of that that didn't have to say anything about which layer is of who is the author is. Um, Okay, we talk about Christmas a moment. Okay, this is on the use of, this is still on Matthew's use of scripture. The little boy and the little town. So Matthew, let's turn to Matthew 2. Okay, do a bit of, do a bit of Bible. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, so as we walk through this, notice what they call Jesus and what they call Herod at different, and what Matthew calls Jesus and what Matthew calls Herod at different stages in the story. Okay? Because you'll notice a lot of the time they don't call them Herod or Jesus, they call them the king and the child. And try and just notice that as we read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they'd seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, obviously, the question behind Matthew 2 is, well, that section anyway, is the wise man's question, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Um, and Matthew keeps calling Herod the king. He either calls him King Herod or the king, uh, verse 1, verse 3, verse 9. And in contrast, he refers to Jesus as the child, verse 8, 9, 11, 13. But when the wise men meet Jesus, Matthew stops referring to Herod as the king and just as uses his name. It's like the appearance of the child has demoted the king. And there's another layer to the irony as well, because why does Jesus keep calling Jesus the child? Like nine different times in this chapter, he uses the, word, the, the term the child, which is a little bit odd 
on its own. Like the, you and I at Christmas, we don't tend to do that. I mean, we might say the Christ child because we're quoting a, an old hymn or something, but we generally talk when Jesus was born. But Matthew keeps going on about the child. Why not just use his name? And I think it's because in Isaiah 9 and verse 6, for unto us a child has been born, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, i.e. not Herod's. So when the question is, where's the king of the Jews? That's the whole point is, is it the one in Jerusalem or is it the one in Bethlehem? Which one are we looking for here? Is it the, the king or is it the child? And so as soon as you see it's the child is the one who's got the government on his shoulders and note this guy is now no longer the king. He's just plain old Herod. Now, interestingly, throw another little, little fact out there. Um, the word kingdom, <laughs> I just did that for Neil and Caroline. Um, the word kingdom doesn't appear in the first two chapters or the last two chapters of Matthew. And this is unrelated to your question, but it's an interesting example of it. And it, actually, I think the kingdom is concentrated all throughout the middle. But at the beginning and end of the gospel, we have a lot of appearances of the phrase, the king of the Jews. So it's a little bit weird to go, well, we've got two chapters where you have king of the Jews, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. Then 24 chapters of the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And then two chapters of the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. What is going on there? Nobody uses the phrase, the king of the Jews, between the wise men and Pilate at all. But actually to read Matthew 2, and in some ways to read Matthew 27, you'd think this is a huge part of who Matthew thinks Jesus is. But it's just really interesting that it gives you a huge intro of who the king is, then talks a lot about the kingdom, and then concludes by talking once again about the king. Now, obviously, we can and should do both. I'm clearly not saying, oh, no, and therefore we're now in a Matthew 29 world, so don't mention the kingdom. I'm clearly not saying that. But I just think it's interesting that Matthew is he's playing with us a little bit. He's going, who do you think the king of the Jews really is? Is it the Herod or is it the, the boy? And so he's only, the phrase king of the Jews is only used at moments when powerful rulers are trying to kill him. Gentiles are following him and other people are bowing down to him and worshipping him. Those are, the, those are the bits of the gospels where that happens, aren't they? The wise men, pilots, book, book ending, the whole of the bit in the middle, the two bits where the rulers and powers of the world are literally trying to kill him, in one case of course do kill him. And other people, including Gentiles, are bowing down and worshipping him. You think, oh, what is going on there? Because they do, as you know, worship him in Matthew 28. So I just think that's a little bit... I think it's interesting. I like this kind of stuff. I actually, um, I was at um, Toppy's church in North London last year and preached this, preached this as a sort of message called It's All About the King, but why it is that we're using, drawing this theme out about the difference between the passages on the king and the passages on the kingdom. And I just think there's... I think it's fruitful. I think it's fascinating. So we have this... Uh, you know, the little boy, the unexpected king, the little boy. And then, of course, we have the unexpected town, the little town. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And you only say that because people would think Bethlehem was the least. So you're little, you're a little bit backwardsy, house of bread, but you're not, you know, no one would think that's where the king was going to come from, but you are and you will be because there will be a ruler who will shepherd the people of Israel who comes from there. And uh, this is a, another thing I wrote for, for our Christmas service last year, just to sort of to draw this out, I hope. Every culture has two types of city. One is the capital, the city of power, of palace and temple and ivory tower, where they build giant structures that scrape the sky, London, Moscow, Cairo, Dubai. The city of power is powered by royalty with hundreds of celebrities and millions of non-entities. The streets are full of people, the shops are full of things, you'd call it city of kings. The other kind of city is the nowhere town, 
The place on the margins, tired, run down, where businesses make terrible yields and work, if at all, happens out in the fields. Its only purpose is to grow the wheat so the city of kings has something to eat, making loaves and grinding flour for the privileged oafs in the city of power. Bakersville, Barnsley, Bethlehemstead. You could call it the house of bread. So what kind of place does God come down? To the capital city or the nowhere town? When God comes in person to rescue things, does he go to the palace in the city of kings or does he lower his sights and his standards and head for the marginal folk in the house of bread? London, New York, Paris, Jerusalem or Barnstaple, Bakersville, Barnsley, Bethlehem? To haute cuisine or meat and two veg? To the center or those on the edge? The three wise men had studied the stars, the path of Orion, the position of Mars. They'd read the signs and they'd done their analysis and they knew that kings all lived in palaces. So they packed their camels with expensive things and went straight to the city of kings. We're looking for the world's true king, they said. He must be here in the capital city. Well, that was awkward for the Bible committee. But the world's true king isn't here, they said. He's down the road in the house of bread. A barn in Barnsley. A Bethlehem shed. No cameras, no comforts, no crib for a bed, no fans or fan for a royal gown, just nobody parents in a nowhere town. The marginal God had come down. He's been doing exactly that ever since. The royal recoil, celebrities wince, the rich roll their eyes and the fashionable cringe as the God of the margins heads to the fringe. We all expected a God of glamour with an iron throne and a silver hammer. We all expected a God who would say through military power, not the death of a slave, but the God of the ages was born in a shed in the town of David, the house of bread. He spent his life with the marginal dross from the shed to the shop to the ship to the cross. And only then, when all looked like loss, did he conquer the grave and ascend into glory. Welcome to the Bethlehem story. And I think seeing, it in that, seeing through that lens... Uh, the idea that there's a con deliberate contrast that Matthew keeps doing it between the, the, the it's not just the, the boy versus the king it's like Bethlehem versus Jerusalem and Jane was Jane and I were talking about this just just in the break the the, su the surprise of Bethlehem and how strange it is and what Bethlehem means in the Old Testament but you do get the impression people still even in the in Matthew 2 are going really there so the odd thing about Jesus is he comes from two places Bethlehem and Nazareth both of which seem profoundly odd to the people around. That's not where they would expect God to be. And I think both of them are drawing on that Old Testament tradition. It's part of the way Matthew reads the Bible, is he's reading Isaiah 9, and the fact that there's a child rather than a king, or a child pitted against a king, and he's reading Micah 5, it's Bethlehem versus Jerusalem, and he's telling the story with those two prophetic texts informing his narrative, so you can see how strange it is. I think he is anyway. Any questions or comments on little boys, little towns, other things? Okay. Matthew and Deuteronomy. Sorry, I, I think I must have... This page, I can never quite work out how to make it look nice. So it's just got some ugly squares just slapped down willy-nilly. Apologies. But again, Matthew is doing... A Deuter this is just lots of, for those of you by now, you might be being sort of brain worn out, I don't know. I know it's late on the second day. This is the most difficult time to concentrate. But I'm just trying to give lots of different ways of slicing the book, some of which will stick and some of which won't. Um, but I think Matthew is doing a, a Deuteronomy story in the, the journey of uh, return from exile through the new covenant. So obviously you begin with, a new, with an exile, return from exile kind of story with the new covenant. The Rachel is weeping in Rama in chapter two. 
and Isaiah 40 being quoted in, in chapter 3. Then you have a temptation story, which is very Deuteronomic. We haven't really talked about the temptation story, but all three of those quotes, as we often point out, uh, that Jesus gives, it is written, it is written. They all come from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 to 8. Then you have the Beatitudes, which obviously reflect the, the blessings and the curses that you get in Deuteronomy. These are the blessings for those who keep it. These are the woes who don't. Then you have the, the second law. So I know I've, I'm cheating here because I've talked about the Sermon on the Mount like Sinai. But there's a sense in which you can say, well, it's not quite Sinai, actually. It's like, a, it's like the second giving of the law. It's the, the deuteros nomos, the second law, the, the giving of the law when God restates what he wants the people to do after Sinai. You, in some ways, you could say it's more Deuteronomic than Sinai. Sinaitic? I've lost my adjectives. Anyway, the, whatever the adjective from Sinai is, it's more, to, it's more like Deuteronomy than it is like Sinai in a way because it's all, you've heard it was said, but now I'm saying this. Five blocks of teaching delivered from the mountain. When Jesus had finished these words, like Moses, repeatedly it says in Deuteronomy, when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, you must be teleoi, as your father is teleos, just like Deuteronomy 18.13. You, you shall be teleos before the Lord your God in the Septuagint. You shall be perfect or you should be whole or complete. So this big block of second law teaching. And then you say, yeah, and then there's also curses. The seven woes, the woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites. And then you've got the greatest commandment, obviously also drawn from Deuteronomy, from the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' answers, in a way, work backwards through Deuteronomy 6 to 8, like they work forwards through it in the temptation, uh, through the temptation story. And then again, a new covenant and return for exile passage at the end with the resurrection and commission standing on a great mountain as Moses does at the end. And so, I'd, now obviously you could overplay it. And, you know, where's the song of Moses in that? And where's these other bits? But I do think there's a bunch of parallels there which are worth reflecting on. Again, maybe back to the question, I think, I think of it as Stuart's question from yesterday, but where's, well, how do you preach this? Maybe less to the way we preach Matthew and more the way we preach Deuteronomy. But then I'm looking at a load of people going, we don't preach Deuteronomy. <laughs> if you ever do, this might help. Um, so I just think there's a, but Matthew, which actually dispositionally to me fits with who Matthew seems to be. That he is, he sees himself as the, the scribe bringing out new and old treasures. He sees himself as presenting in quite a sort of teachy, rigorously structured way what Jesus wants from his people. Um, and so I kind of almost, I would see that he would have a more rabbinic approach to the way of telling the story. So the idea that it was coloured by Deuteronomy, I would find plausible, I think. Any, any questions or come back on that? Luke. Um, as you said, how this kind of, what we do with this, are there, one way in which we can do that is like, okay, if he's signposting Deuteronomy to us, what are the particular concerns of Deuteronomy that might not be referenced directly in those citations or whatever, what matters to Deuteronomy that we're there, Matthew's therefore wanting us yeah. to, to think about? Yes. To allude to it directly, to be like, I want you to think about Deuteronomy. Generally. Yeah. Is that, that's a legitimate thing, and if so, what would you say those might I think it is a legitimate thing, and I think where I think Deuteronomy heads like, like sort of in a the payoff of Deuteronomy is all to me is all in chapters thirty to thirty three, really. Um, 
I mean, obviously that sounds bad because Jesus quotes, you know, the, the, the Shema and the you man shall not live by bread alone. So there's loads and loads of really important texts. But I think when you read it as a story, Deuteronomy is narrating Israel through their own failings at length. Even those passages, chapter 6 and 8 with the Shema and the man shall not live by bread alone, they're all told in narrative. It's like Moses is telling Israel, remember what you did? That's what happened. And so Deuteronomy is told as a narration of the backstory. And then in, is it chapter 11 or chapter 10? And then from there through until chapter 27, you've then got right now, but this is the law I've given to you. Maybe it's 12 to 27, I forget. Um, but I'm, here's now all this block of law I'm going to give to you. But then at the end, blessings and cursings come. And then chapter 30, and now the new covenant will come. You're, you're not, you're not going to make it, basically. This is all going to, you're, this is going to stump you. It's going to be too much for you. But the day is coming when I'm going to circumcise your hearts. And you're not going to say, oh, who will bring the law down from above? Because it will be in you, this word that's in your heart, so that you can do it. Which obviously for Paul in Romans 10 is just massive. And he says, that's the word that Jesus is Lord and God raised him. And so that idea that the covenant has finally come to pass. So I think if you were to read that onto Matthew, you'd say this is a block of teaching that builds towards a moment in which God will come circumcise the hearts of people and enable them to keep the law that God always had them to do through a work of redemption. And then a song at the end, but I don't really know how that fits in. <laughs> um, the, the rock and all that stuff. So that would be a, an outline, yes. But again, you'd probably do that if you were preaching Deuteronomy, not Matthew, because it would just seem obscure otherwise, I think. Okay. I got, I got a predictable, I got a 5.30 response then. Luke was eager beavery making, making notes, but I just saw a sea of blank. I'm not judging, but, you know, just kind of there. Um, and uh, so that's fine. We will move on to the Beatitudes. Um, and you're doing really well. Um, so the, I mentioned this earlier and said we were going to come back to it, and, and I, I really want to because I think the Beatitudes in a way, I'm, I wouldn't quite say these are simply universalizations of Old Testament principles, but I think Stu raised this earlier and we talked a bit about it. Um, and so I wanted to go, okay, so here's where the Beatitudes come from. And some of them are simply direct quotes, some of them are quotes with a twist, and some of them are close enough to make you think he's got one in mind while he's saying the other, but we can't be certain. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. Well, Isaiah 66, 2. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So, obvious similarity, the idea of being contrite or broken or poor in spirit. I think that parallel is very strong. And Isaiah 66, this is the person I'm going to look to. And... Um, and then Matthew 5 is, this is the one who inherits the kingdom of heaven. Um, although actually, the very next verse in Isaiah 66 talks about heaven and earth. In heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, so what house are you going to build for me? Um, no, in fact, that's immediately before it, isn't it? In, in the first half of verse 2. Um, and so the, the idea of there being heaven being for those who are poor or contrite in spirit seems closely connected in those two. The second one, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is one's more obvious. We touched on it earlier. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, dot, 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 to comfort all who mourn. And so, you know, blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. That's really clear. I imagine no one is persuading that that is drawn from Isaiah 61. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37, 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Again, bearing in mind that land, eretz, Land, earth, could go either way. 
It's a very strong parallel there. And again, when we read through the Psalms, as one of the, do you do this where you're reading the Psalms? You sort of go, oh, that's the bit from the Beatitudes. We never, we don't, we never read it the other way around because you know blessed are the meek so well that you think of it as being borrowed from Matthew. And then another part of your brain goes, I think this bit was written first. Um, but just like as your son is reading, you go, that's the bit from the Matt Redman song. And you're like, oh, again, the other way around. Um, but that happened to me with Psalm 37. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, this one involves crossing a chapter boundary, which we're not really allowed to do, but obviously there's no chapter boundaries in Hebrew or Greek. So if you read the, end, the last verse of Isaiah 54 and the first of Isaiah 55, you get this. Their righteousness is from me, declares the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and whoever has no money, come, buy and eat. I find that really compelling. Like, hunger and thirst for righteousness. We wouldn't notice it because... That bit, the first phrase is at the end of Isaiah 54. The other bit's in a completely different place, namely the opening line of Isaiah 55. But of course, if you take that chapter boundary out, which some of these sort of reader Bibles and things do, you just, it just flows one into the other and you don't even notice. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Proverbs 19, verse 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Not using the same word, of course, but the concept is identical, I think. You are merciful to the poor. You bless the poor. God will be merciful to you. And of course, there's Proverbs which do the opposite and say, if you don't listen to the cry of the poor, you yourself will cry out and not be heard, which I think is the Proverbs 21, 13. That's, a, that's one of the scarier Old Testament passages, I think. Isn't it, Natalie? Yeah, it is, in a good way. Okay. And um, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Psalm 24, 3. And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Yeah, the pure in heart will see God. Now, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Come, O children, listen to me. What man is there who desires life, seek peace, and pursue it? So that's a, that is a weaker connection, I think. I, I think the idea that you should be peacemakers, great. That being a peacemaker means that you will find life, great. But it doesn't particularly go, I mean, you could, the come, O children, is my attempt to go. So there is a hint here that you are children of God by being those who seek life, by seeking peace. But I admit it's a weaker connection. Um, and if the others weren't all there, I might not have bothered. But the others, many of the others, I think, are very strong. So I, I, I think it is worth uh, seeing that there as well. And then finally, the last two. So again, nine, by, nine beatitudes, not eight. Blessed are those, or flourishing are those, of course, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others, or flourishing are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now that in many ways encapsulates so many different biblical texts that it's hard to pick one, but I've gone for Psalm 22. I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, for kingship belongs to the Lord. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So in other words, I, the psalmist, am being persecuted for righteousness' sake. They've pierced my hands and feet, they've mocked me, they've wagged their heads at me, all those sorts of things. But this is happening on account of God and on account of the, his righteousness in order that other people may know his righteousness and the day will come when I will have been vindicated for this suffering and people will say the Lord has done it. So the bottom two are less, the phrases transfer across less than they do in the previous seven, but I think there's a lot there. Questions, comments, who cares, 
Any of, the, <laughs> any of that sort of thing. Stuart. Um, because I, th yes, good question. So you mean because of, you know, he has come to preach good news to the poor? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. And clearly, I think you, there are elements of both, definitely. I, but I think, the, I think for Luke's one, the Luke's version obviously is, you know, best of the poor. I think that's that's clearer, but I think he, Matthew has gone for poor in spirit, and quite specifically, the fact that he's put that in there, even though he is about to allude to Isaiah 61, to me is like, so why have you gone for the one, the poor in spirit? Why why did you do that? And I think that idea of being contrite in spirit is obviously different from, certainly to our ears, probably a little bit less to their ears, but it feels quite different. Poor in spirit, poor. Poor means you don't have any money. Poor in spirit means humble. Those are things that are not necessarily the same at all. Um, plenty of arrogant poor people and humble rich people. So I think there is a, I think that's why for me the, the, the Isaiah 66 feels stronger because that, that's much more about the spirit of the person and the humility of the person, which I think is the gist, but I, I don't deny that the other one's there as well. Um. Yeah, to me, it's always got a little bit like, in, is it in Luke where Jesus kind of announces his arrival with the Isaiah yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and I, th I think he is, but I just, but I also think it's revealing that Matthew doesn't do that. that, that effectively, Luke is clearly saying that is what who Jesus is, and Matthew's saying that's one of the many things Jesus is. But I think the very fact that he could so easily have done that and didn't, and talked about being poor in spirit, to me indicates he's got other texts in mind as well, and then quickly moves on to all sorts of other texts from the Psalms and elsewhere and Isaiah and elsewhere. So. I think he's, he's, whereas Luke, I think, is going, zeroing in on one text again, that passage makes sense of the ministry of Jesus. Matthew's deliberately chosen eight or nine. And I think that kind of smorgasbord, to me, yeah, it's, it's just a slightly different way of introducing what Jesus' ministry is about, I think. But I may not persuade, and that's fine. I'm not, um, yeah. Or was that not a hand? Or? No, it wasn't a hand. Um, you've already got... Oh, yes. Yes, I mean, I think most of Jesus' quotations are from the Psalms. That's where he quotes more than anywhere else. And so you would expect there to be lots of Psalms everywhere. Um, I, and, and there are, and that's the book of Psalms that most, I suppose, relates to the way in which the godly sufferer is intended to live. Um, and, yeah, all of the Psalms, I think that's right, Tim, all five of the books of the Psalms end with a, a benediction, with a blessed other, yeah. Um, so in some ways, I would expect that to be the way that, the way that it, it came out. But I think the Isaiah, the Isaiah ones being the front two, whether Stu's right or I am or both of us are, 
it's clearly not justice. It's not, I don't think there's a merit in going, well, let's find versions of this in all, of the, all from Psalms to neaten it up, because I think the, uh, the Isaiah 61 and 66 passages, I think, are quite prominent in what he's doing too. Um, but some of that is just because Jesus loves quoting the Psalms all the time. Um, and so do I. Okay. Um, we'll do... We've got one... Yeah, we do. We, I think we will do the next two and then finish, which is great because um, then we'll go for dinner. Um, the divinity of Jesus. We really haven't talked about this as oddly, as important a doctrine as it is and as important in Matthew as it is. It seems a bit odd. We haven't really done that much kind of theology in the literal sense of that word at this Think Theology conference. <laughs> so uh, the divinity of Jesus. Matthew uses scripture a lot to help us see the divinity of Jesus in some really subtle and quite intriguing ways. And this is something, again, Richard Hayes does a great job on in his Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels. He's very good at picking up on Old Testament passages and then going, notice what must be true of Christ for that Old Testament passage to be quoted of him rather than of, say, Yahweh or, or just God the Father. The most obvious one, I guess, is the citation from Isaiah 7.14, when Jesus is named. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Very explicitly, this child is God with us. And not quite God in human form, but he brings the presence of God to such a degree that we've named him that. More suggestively, there's a, in the confrontation with Satan, Matthew introduces, introduces us to the idea that you can't worship anyone except God, and using this verb, uh, you can't worship anyone except God, and this noun actually, but that, in that form. But um, and then shows us all sorts of people worshiping Jesus. So it's like you cannot bow down and worship anyone except the Lord in the temptation. That's that's why he's so angry with Satan. And say, how dare you do this? You don't worship anyone except God. And then the gospel is peppered with people who actually do bow down and worship Jesus, which only makes sense if if you can only worship God. That only makes sense if Jesus is God. It's a really good way of thinking about the divinity of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Wise men come and they, they do. They proscunia before him. A leper comes and bows down before him the same way the ruler of the synagogue does. A Canaanite woman does. James and John's mother do. The two Marys both do in Matthew 28. Now on its own, you might think, well, that doesn't, you know, people are just bowing down. It's just a turn of phrase. But it really counts for something when you have had Jesus' battle with the devil introduced with the idea that if you do that to anybody other than God, you're blaspheming. And then you find all these other people doing it. You think, wow, that, that's a strong argument for Christ's divinity. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When they saw him, I was thinking, so we're going to meet these guys one day. And it's like, were you one of the ones who worshipped him or one of the ones who doubted? Or both. Like, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And I kind of always want, like, to, is there a picture of that in your kids' Bible, Carl? Just a group of people over here just going, you know, how would you draw it? But there, people worshipped him. But again, even that, the fact that the disciples, when they see the risen Jesus, worship, that's such a strong statement of divinity in the context of a gospel like this. And then similarly, Jesus' claims for his everlasting word and ongoing presence with the disciples only makes sense in the context of an Emmanuel Christology, if you want to call it that, a God with us Christology. Who else talks like this? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. It's obviously not, as we know, a... I know there's not many people at this prayer meeting, but don't worry, God still hears us text. So, you know, at the time, it's a church discipline text, actually, which is not something we often want to talk or think about, but... Whatever it's really about, who else could talk like that? 
He wants to say, if you're gathered in my name, I'm there. Not the Spirit is with you, although obviously that's true. I'm there. So we don't get an, a farewell discourse in John. We don't get John 14 to 16 on how the paraclete, how the helper is going to come and bring the presence of Jesus. So you might think, oh, we don't really have that idea of Jesus' presence with his disciples forever. But we have it here. If you get together, two or three of you, to pray, to excommunicate, which is obviously the context in Matthew 18, or anything else, I'm there. It's just an astonishing claim for somebody who, it would be a completely absurd lunatic claim for someone who wasn't God. Or at least someone who didn't believe they were God. It's just madness. And so this is one of those kind of passages that when C.S. Lewis appeals to that, he's, a man who talks like this is either trying to trick you or he's a loon like a guy who thinks he's a poached egg or he's God. Like You can't be anything else when you say that kind of thing because of the, sort of the ridiculousness of the claim. Imagine, someone, imagine your pastor saying it. Wherever you are gathered, I am also there. Like, where? Like, what are you talking about? It's just such a stupid thing to say. It's only your, the Emmanuel Christology that would, that would carry that kind of remark. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. <laughs> See? <laughs> Heaven and earth will pass away. Sorry? He does, but again, even the, the differences are instructive because he says, when you're, in, again, in a church discipline context, when my spirit is present, but he doesn't say, I'm there. And I think that the, the, the difference is actually quite important. I think if he'd said, if Jesus had said, that my spirit will be with you when you gather, that would have felt, I mean, obviously it's still a big claim, but it's a, it's a softer claim. But to say, I'm there in the midst of you is a level above saying my spirit is there, I think. And obviously it is a confusing text in 1 Corinthians 5. But, um, and I don't know, do you, do you do that, Jeremy? Just <laughs> apostolic gathering, my spirit is here. <laughs> you better watch it. Um, but that's maybe what you meant by safeguarding just now. I don't know. I'm always watching. Um, so no, you're right, he does. But I think the I am there is a much bigger, a much bigger claim. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words won't pass away. What a ridiculous claim for an ordinary man. But as I 40, of course, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So Hayes is really good at this. He just shows again and again, there's an allusion to a text that only makes sense if Jesus thinks he's God. Even though, famously, he never says, I am God in the Gospels. I mean, he obviously very nearly does in John. So some people go, he, he thinks he's God in John, but he doesn't really in the other Gospels. So, you know, this is made up by the Christians. You think, no, no, no. The... It, throughout the Gospels, Jesus says all sorts of things that cannot make any sense if he doesn't believe himself to be God with us. As you did it to one, it's preposterous. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What do you mean? Again, imagine another, even imagine a Muhammad saying that or a Buddha saying that. Anytime you reach and touch a poor person, you are doing it for me. It's like, well, for a start, you're dead. So what does that mean? But Jesus says, no, no, whenever. You reached out and served the poor. You did it as if for me. It's obviously very reminiscent of Proverbs 19. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and will be repaid in full. Which I think we might just have quoted in another context on the previous page. So again, this, this, that's the Lord in that text. If you're kind to the poor, you're kind to the Lord. And now Jesus is saying, if you're kind to the poor, you're kind to me. That's what you've done. And then, of course, the, the famous last words of the gospel. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. You can't say that unless you're, you're basically promising a version of omnipresence forever. 
well, what kind of a bigger theological claim could you make? So it's very strong teaching of the divinity of Jesus in a gospel that probably on the face of it wouldn't seem to make the most obvious Christological claims. If you were to rank them, you'd go, well, you know, John, Revelation, Hebrews, some, and some, other, you'd get some of the Pauline letters, you get there's some really explicit ones, but you wouldn't put Matthew high on the list, I wouldn't say. If you, how obvious is it that Jesus is God in this book kind of list that I'm sure you all have on your phones? Um, but you wouldn't probably put him there. You might come down eighth or tenth or something, but you read it through this lens, you think there's an awful lot of this running throughout the gospel. Any questions on Jesus and God? <laughs> the main two subjects of Christian theology. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's turn there, shall we? So let's go to Matthew 26. Can you, while we're turning there, can you give us some context behind your question? I, I think I know what you mean, but... I think, I think that my priest, well, he says it's blasphemy when he says, you'll see the Son of Man yeah. coming on the cloud of heaven. So he seems to feel that's a claim, maybe that says yes to the question about are you, are you the son of God? Yes. So, again, I've, lost, I've not got verse numbers in this version. So can somebody tell me what verse it is when it says, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. 63. Okay, so Matthew 26, 63. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. And it's fascinating because obviously in Daniel 7, where that quote is taken from, the idea that the Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven, you have the Ancient of Days and then next to him sits the Son of Man and the Son of Man comes before the ancient of days, books are opened and all this stuff. And Israelites, it seemed at the time, read the Son of Man as if he was standing for Israel. But when Jesus uses that language of himself at the end of a gospel in which he's repeatedly called himself the Son of Man, and everyone's always argued about why, they hear it and they think that's a blasphemous claim because we don't think you're simply saying, I am representing Israel. You are clearly referring yourself as the one through whom the ancient of days is going to judge the world and apportion rewards and judge the righteous and condemn the wicked. And you're clearly claiming to be that person. You're saying that when that, that you are going to return, either come into the presence of the ancient of days or you're going to return to the earth or both, depending on what you think about eschatology. And we'll come back to that. And when you do, you're going to carry the authority of God to judge all of the nations and be, have received an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that, is, that could only, as a, if you're an individual making that claim, that could only really be a claim to co-divinity with God. And I think that's the only reason they, might, they must think it's blasphemous. Because on its own, referring to Israel as the Son of Man is not blasphemous. I mean, that's what a lot of people at the time seem to have believed. But the fact that they hear it that way makes me think, they think he's upgrading. When they say, are you the Son of God? What they're asking is, are you the Christ? And he says, and you'll see the Son of Man coming. It sounds like they think Son of Man is a bigger claim than Son of God. Whereas obviously we've often heard it the other way around. Son of God means he's divine. Son of Man means he's human. But if anything, it's the other way around. Son of God means he's the Christ. And Son of Man means he's the one alongside the Ancient of Days judging the world. John, can you help us out here? Well, I've got to know that it's, uh, Jesus is, connect, is linking it to Psalm 110. Right. Uh, verse 1, which says, The Lord says to 
Yeah. Yes. Yes, the one who's sitting at the right hand of the power. Oh, so this is another one of those um, Matthew's intertextual weaving, right? So the so the footnote writers are presumably saying he's he's quoting Daniel seven mingled with Psalm one hundred and ten, right? I hadn't seen that. I think that's very plausible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he is, but on its own, that wouldn't be blasphemous. I think that's the point, isn't it? That if he says, are you the son of God? And Jesus says, you've said so, that on its own isn't a claim to divinity necessarily because son of God so often means lots of other things in the Old Testament. But the fact that he says that and quotes that text or those texts, if John's right, and, and, and sort of play, pulls that out and they go blaspheming, well, that, they, they are, if nothing else, they have heard that to be a claim to divinity of some sort, which... But it takes a bit more digging in, into the Old Testament references to work out why they think that. That's a really good, whoever, yeah, thanks. It was a really great, great point. Anybody else on this? Yeah? Yeah, I don't know if it sheds light on this, but Mike Heiser's done a paper on two powers of heaven. Did you say your Kaiser has done a paper? Mike Heiser. Mike Heiser, I'm so sorry. I honestly... <laughs> I really... I took. I often make jokes like that, but on this occasion, I was genuinely going. Did he just say my Kaiser? Like, I did, okay, Michael Heiser. Yes. Okay. Um, he's written a paper on the Second Temple understanding of the two powers of heaven. That in Judaism yeah. there was this concept that God wasn't alone, as it were. So when the prophets write about the word of the Lord appeared. Yeah. Me, yeah. This is actually a second person. So yes. It may well be mm. in the high yeah, I mean, I think, and to be honest, the Daniel 7 text anyway indicate there's clearly two agents in Daniel 7 anyway, aren't there? The ancient of days and the, and the one like a son of man who approaches him. You, you can't read Daniel 7 with only one agent, sovereign agent there. There must be two, at least. So I think that's true in some ways, whether or not Heiser is right about that. And I, I, I do buy some of that, the way in which they talked about the appearing of, you know, the commander of the Lord's army and the angel of the Lord, lots of other tropes like that. And I think that I find that quite plausible. Um, but even if not, it's still true of that text in Daniel. Okay, one more page. And then we will go up the streets, um, which would be great. Uh, scripture and global mission. Somebody was asking about this yesterday in the context of the, the global mission reach of, of Matthew. Um, but just start with a, a few different examples of Matthew's citations and allusions. So things Matthew says that draw on Old Testament passages about the ingathering of the Gentiles. And you'll see this is a very, very mission-centered book. There's a lot of Gentile inclusion in Matthew, just as there is in Isaiah. And obviously many of these references are, are from Isaiah. Uh, the star that they'd seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So obviously, that is Gentiles, the first people to worship Jesus in the whole Bible. Are I mean, unless you go with what you were saying about people worshipping Jesus in the Old Testament. But in the whole Bible, the first people to explicitly worship Jesus are pagan astrologers from a far-flung eastern country. Some say Iran, some say Arabia, but... Some say Arabs, like 
when you do, that's what Kenneth Bailey says, actually. It's interesting. Um, but alongside that, of course, there's the allusion to Isaiah 60. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising, which is why we call them we three kings, by the way. It's because people are reading Isaiah 60 into it. They must be kings. Um, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Again, many of us will know that. That allusion is there. And then, of course, you have the long Isaiah uh, 42 quoted in chapter 12. My servant who I have chosen, but then towards the end, in his name, the Gentiles or the nations will hope. So again, the longest block quotation in Matthew is a block quotation that ends with the Gentiles finding hope in the Messiah. It's a strong missional emphasis. Truly, in chapter 8, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Allusion to Isaiah 43. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you up. I'll say to the north, give them up, and to the south, don't withhold. Bring my sons from far away. It's worth saying on that that the idea of this, the messianic banquet to which all the nations were invited is not unique even to Isaiah or Jesus, but it's been understood very differently in some of the sources in between Isaiah and Jesus. So in 1 Enoch 62, the Gentiles are in a way invited to the banquet, but it's a little bit like the red wedding in Game of Thrones, which I don't know if you, you know that kind of, you invite lots of people to a banquet and then everybody gets killed. That's basically what happens in 1 Enoch 62, the Gentiles are massacred and the blood is everywhere. The Targum on Isaiah 25, they talk about the great eschatological banquet, and then it basically talks about the fact that, the, yes, the Gentiles are, but the Targum, as in the, the Hebrew interpretation, the Aramaic interpretation, what do we think is really going on here? Is, yeah, I know it says this is a fe- feast for all peoples, but what's really going to happen is plagues and shame will come upon the Gentiles when they come. Which is a sign of, it's like a sort of halfway between a commentary and a translation. It's like, let's put in lots of notes to help people understand like, almost like a study Bible in a, in a sense but that's what's going to happen the Gentiles will be invited and they'll all be ashamed that they came and they'll all be covered in plagues in the Qumran community the Messianic rule there are going to be in the feast the eschatological banquet there'll be no Gentiles and there will be no paralyzed or lame or blind or deaf or dumb or anyone smitten in flesh with visible blemish and of course Jesus in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's gospel not only says the Gentiles will come, but walks around healing the deaf, the dumb, the lame, the paralyzed, and those smitten in flesh with blemish. So it's like he's, I'm, again, I'm not saying he's doing that just to oppose the Qumran reading, but I think what he's saying is all of these people through my ministry are going to come to the banquet and the feast of the kingdom of God. And then, of course, Matthew 28. All authority, exousia, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, Pantata Ethne. And to him was given all authority over all the nations of the world and all generations, and his authority was everlasting. And then alongside that, we've got the Jonah and Solomon, which is Jonah who went to Nineveh, the Assyrians up there, Solomon who spoke to the Queen of the South all the, all the way down there. Maybe Assyria and Ethiopia, or Assyria and Yemen, some would say. But yeah, again, with Jonah... In Nineveh, Solomon and the Queen of the South, you've got the full extent of the the road that even Isaiah imagined, the highway of the nations bringing from distant Assyria, distant south in Cush, all coming to worship the Lord. And there's many other pointers towards Gentile mission. In Matthew, the Gentile inclusion in the genealogy, we've seen the contrast between the pagan Magi and faithless Herod. So Herod, of course, being a Jew, doesn't believe the Magi do believe and then pagans. 
Out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham, so there's nothing special about you guys. Truly, I tell you, I haven't found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Many will come from east and west. Tyre and Sidon and Sodom are going to be treated worse, if you like, than, sorry, are going to be treated better at the judgment than Korats and Bethsaida and Capernaum. In other words, you guys are Jewish cities, but your judgment will be harsher than those of Sodom and Gomorrah because you've rejected me. The contrast between the Canaanite woman and the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees and the Great Commission, of course, into all nations. So loads and loads of Gentile mission actually floated through this book as a whole. But it is six o'clock. People have, yeah, I think you deserve a meal. It hasn't, it's not as sunny as I was hoping, but never mind. It is usually sunny in South London when you ask it long enough. Zoe, is Zoe in the house? She is. Okay, let's welcome Zoe to the stage. She's going to tell us what to do.